Welcome to the Dr. Dad's Podcast, where a naturopath and chiropractor come together each week to share lifestyle medicine, health advice, and inspiring interviews with some of the top experts in health and wellness, bringing you the latest in nutrition, exercise, ancient healing, toxins and detox, your microbiome, mindset, hormones, brain, and much more. Stay tuned. We're going to teach you how to experience growth daily. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Dr. Dad's Podcast. I'm here with my brother, Dr. David Wardy. How are you today? I'm great, man. How are you? Really good. Really good. I'm excited I'm, today, man. This is a big topic. It's a huge yeah. topic. Yeah, especially yeah. coming off of Halloween, right? Oh, yeah. Well, we have this massive epidemic with type 2 diabetes and metabolic disease and all these really bad things. I mean, there's like a dialysis center every couple of blocks in El Paso. It's a little disturbing. Yeah. So I've been really excited to get Dr. Fung on with this, man. I'm, I'm pumped, man. This is this is good stuff. Yeah. So uh, let, me, let me introduce him and then we'll... Uh, for those of you who don't know Dr. Jason Fong, he's a Canadian nephrologist. He's a world-leading expert on intermittent fasting and low-carb, especially for treating people with type 2 diabetes. He's written three best-selling health books, uh, The Diabetes Code, The Obesity Code, and about to drop on Tuesday, November 10th, The Cancer Code. Uh, he also co-founded the Intensive Dietary Management Program. Uh, he has his own website, idm.health and thefastingmethod.com. You can also find him on dietdoctor.com. Dr. Jason Fung works in Toronto and practices there and uh, we're honored to have you on today uh, Dr. Jason Fung. Thanks for being here. Yeah thanks. Yeah so I mean yeah awesome awesome I think we we lost audio for a sec. Um, one One of the things that just I think just captures the mind and the hope of so many people is a line that you said in one of your videos that I think is so extremely powerful and it's um, your plan is to eradicate the scourge of type 2 diabetes. Uh, that's a really big undertaking and such an important one. Can you just start off by diving into uh, where, where that intention was coming from? Yeah, so I'm a uh, kidney specialist, so I see a lot of uh, type 2 diabetes. And of course, over the last 20 years, it's just been a bigger and bigger problem um, with, with uh, you know, the obesity epidemic, which led, uh, you know, to the related epidemic of type 2 diabetes, uh, which is by far and away the biggest cause of kidney disease. So, but it's not just kidney disease. It's actually uh, puts you at a huge risk. Type 2 diabetes puts you at a huge risk of heart disease and uh, strokes and cancers and all kinds of other uh, bad problems. And the thing about type 2 diabetes is that um, as, you know, I was training in medical school and stuff, and even now there's this whole idea that type 2 diabetes is somehow this chronic and progressive disease. And you'll see this attitude in doctors in dietitians, in, you know, the American Diabetes Association, and all kinds of places. And the problem with that is that really it's just like one gigantic lie because everybody knows, and you don't have to be a doctor, but everybody knows that if you lose weight, that diabetes either gets way better or it just goes away completely. So in fact, this, I, you know, this, this uh, message that's being promoted that, hey, you have type 2 diabetes, you, know, you better hunker down, you're going to have a heart attack and die at some point, um, is actually not true. So, and, and we have to change that because you can get rid of it. That is, that is the message that I want people to understand. And, um, you know, even as doctors say, and I see this all the time in medical journals and medical, uh, you know, uh, 
talks and stuff, they always say it's, it's this chronic and progressive disease. And it's like, well, it's clearly not. Like if you know somebody, you know, they develop type 2 diabetes and they lose 50 pounds and, you know, they get off their meds and their sugars go back to normal. You don't go, oh, you're such a liar, right? It's like, that, that's not <laughs> something you do. So we all knew it was reversible. So let's sort of get to it. And that's the whole point because it, it's such a sort of huge risk factor for all these other diseases. And there's interventions such as intermittent fasting that are available to people, which are free which don't cost any money, which uh, anybody can do. That is, you can, you know, start today if you want to. There's nothing that stops you from taking control of your health and reversing it. You just need the knowledge. And that's what we're supposed to be providing as doctors. We're supposed to be providing not medications. What we're supposed to be providing is help to get better. And type 2 diabetes as largely a dietary disease, because we know this, right? We've, you change your diet, very often the diabetes will get better. As a dietary disease, we shouldn't be looking at drugs and surgery, which is what we've been promoting as doctors for so long. And what you've been trained on, what I've been trained on, is how to give more drugs, how to do surgery, and not even you know, 10 minutes you know, describing, hey, like, let's think about these dietary interventions like intermittent fasting that have the potential to really change somebody's life for the better. And that kind of discussion never happens in medical school. It never happens in residency. Like, you never see it being promoted because, well, there's no money in it, right? And we all know that the, the, the drug companies, they buy these free lunches for, for all those doctors. I mean, the universities take tons of money from these places, get all their research dollars and all that kind of stuff, those free dinners that people go to, right? They're paid by drug companies. So of course they're interested in promoting drugs, but that's not our job as physicians. We're here to make people better. It might be drugs and it might be diet, but we need to know about it. And that's, that's why I wrote those books and why, uh, you know, I'm so passionate about promoting this sort of stuff because we've been sort of negligent in this message for people and it really puts a huge black mark on our profession because type 2 diabetes is a very important health risk for 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 other diseases i'm so glad man that that you've come forward and kind of you know brought this for the public by writing these books man because i run into this almost like every month with a patient that comes in where their md that they go to says hey you can't reverse this like this is a lifelong disease and I have to sit here and have a conversation and explain to the patient that that's not true. And I give them your books, man, and like I tell them to go on YouTube and watch your stuff because they just need to hear it from another medical doctor sometimes, or just somebody else that's saying, hey, no, there is something. And then and the, the books are great, man. They, they buy your book. They, they start digging in, and then they come back to me. They're like, oh, man. And then they start that journey that you're talking about. Yeah, and, 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 you know, it's it's not just the books. Like, they don't have to buy the books. I mean, there's all the – the website has, like, free blog posts from, you know, from five, six years uh, going on now, and there's free YouTube videos, and you can join Facebook groups and all this sort of stuff. So the point is not to, you know, sell stuff and do stuff. I mean, this is what we chose to do as a profession – and to just go there, like, you know, you know, these universities that just go there and teach other doctors just about drugs. It's like, how can you neglect 
you know, such an, such a vital part. I remember when I went to this diabetes talk a little while ago, right? And so the person who was actually one of the heads of the, you know, one of the big diabetes association, they're giving a talk to family doctors about how to, you know, how to do this, right? So how to, how to manage people with type 2 diabetes. And of course, they go up there, they go, you know, the number one, two, and three treatment for type 2 diabetes is lifestyle and diet, okay? And then spends, of course, the next 59 minutes of that 60 minutes going over drugs. I'm like, what the hell, right? <laughs> like, if that's the number one, two, and three treatment, then you better speak about it for like 45 out of your 60 minutes. And the fact is that they didn't. And of course, it was, you know, there's a lot of reasons behind that. But it's like, uh, you know, we need people to hear this kind of thing. And I always tell people, like, you know, you have to explain what the disease is, but the disease of type 2 diabetes is actually very, very simple. You know, your body, if it has too much sugar, well, at some point, it's just going to fill up with sugar, it's going to spill out into the blood, and then you have type 2 diabetes, right? So what do you do about it? Well, very simple, right? If you have too much sugar, then don't put more sugar in, or let your body burn off that sugar. So what do you do? Well, intermittent fasting is a very simple way. You're not putting more sugar in and you're simply letting your body burn off the sugar that's there. And of course, if you think about it from a medical perspective, what happens when you fast? Well, your blood glucose goes down. Hey, perfect. Why don't I use that <laughs> instead of uh, insulin, for example, right? And it's like, this is crazy that we wouldn't even think about this kind of thing. Because it's like we warn people, in fact, in type 2 diabetes. So I'm sure you've heard this before. People who get told, oh, you can't fast with your type 2 diabetes. Your sugars might go down. And I'm always like, I want those sugars to go down. Yeah. Like that's the whole point of treatment is to make those sugars go down. So why would you tell somebody that they cannot do that when that's exactly what you're trying to do? So the whole, the whole sort of industry of type 2 diabetes really started to bother me after a while because the entire way that we look at it, and it's not so much the drug companies. Drug companies will do whatever is in their own interest. My problem was that the doctors, the, 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 the professors, the university doctors were not teaching anybody how to actually get better. I mean, it's, it's, it's very simple. It's very logical. Um, and there's really nothing to say. I mean, there's, you know, you don't eat, your sugars go down. You don't eat, you'll lose weight. And as you lose weight, your diabetes will go away. Like there's nothing more to it than that, right? So easy to understand. And, and, and you know, we've published a couple of case series to, showing this sort of exact same thing. I mean, you know, I remember one of the patients I treated, you know, for, for 15 years before. So was on like, I think 160 units of insulin a day, right? And one of these guys who's very meticulous, uh, you know, tracks everything. And I was, of course, just pumping him full of insulin to get those sugars down because that's the way I was taught. But about five or six years ago, I realized, hey, this is not, not the way to do it, right? It doesn't make any sense. Um, and so I put him on a, a regimen of intermittent fasting. I actually took him off all of his insulin, all of his oral hypoglycemics, and he had an A1C of 5.9, which is non-diabetic so here is this poor guy 40 years of type 2 diabetes 15 under my own care and i actually reversed the whole thing all his meds are gone a1z of 5.9 by definition he's actually non 
diabetic. Like that's crazy how much damage was done to his body while I didn't know any better. Of course, you know, I can't look backwards. I have to only look forwards. But it's, it's, it's just a sort of insane sort of uh, thing that we do. I mean, think about type 2 diabetes for a second. I mean, how do you treat it? Like the way I was taught in medical school was you give insulin until their sugars come down, right? Well, type 2 diabetes is a hyperinsulinemic state. So why on earth would you give somebody who's hyperinsulinemic more insulin? Isn't that like exactly what you shouldn't be doing, right? Like you don't treat a hyperthyroid patient with L-thyroxine, right? That'd be like stupid. It'd be the worst thing you could do for them. And of course, from a practical standpoint, what happens when you give insulin? Well, people gain weight. You know that, I know that. Everybody who takes insulin knows that. What happens when you gain weight? Well, your type 2 diabetes gets worse. So it's like, holy, what are we teaching our doctors? Yeah. This is like the worst thing you can do. Now, I get there's a role for insulin and stuff if your sugars are way high, right? You're on the borderline of, you know, coma or something like that. But these little high insulins, it's like, why would you treat that? If insulin is too high, then you need to lower it. And that's why do what fasting you, does. Why do you think that, you know, it's not standard of practice to check a fasting insulin level. You'd think that, you know, in, in all the research and in, in the therapeutic history, you'd think that this should have come across a little bit sooner if, <laughs> if fasting insulins were actually checked. Like, well, what about for you? Like, what, what happened when you saw your first fasting insulin and maybe at that time you're still giving insulin? Like, did you have that aha? Uh -huh? Yeah, I mean, that was a few years ago, I sort of thought about the whole pathophysiology of type 2 diabetes and realized that a lot of that, what we were taught and what we, you know, were continuing, is, is continuing to be taught, is actually completely wrong from a logical standpoint. I mean, um, you know, fasting insulins are very volatile, right? So they're, they're, they're not always so easy. You can do a fasting C-peptide as well. But really, if they have type 2 diabetes, it's going to be high. That's just the disease process. We know that that's uh, going to be true. And the point is that if you think about it from that standpoint, like we think about insulin resistance causing hyperinsulinemia and therefore it's okay to give more insulin but it doesn't make sense because the you know it's it's actually you're just perpetuating mm -hmm. the problem that is you're going to give insulin gain weight and then your diabetes will get worse so then you're going to take more insulin which will make you gain more weight which will make your type diabetes worse again so you see that you're you know patients saw this actually coming a mile away. They, were, they, they saw this sort of vicious spiral that they were in as they packed on their 30 pounds, right? Whereas doctors were like, well, trust me, trust me. And with, with no logical thought that, hey, this is the wrong thing to do. So if insulin is too high, so if insulin is low, so if this is type 1 diabetes, right? If insulin is low, then you give insulin. That makes perfect sense, mm -hmm. right? Just like if you have no thyroid, then you give thyroid medication. But if insulin is high, then you need to lower it. The problem, of course, was that back in the day, we didn't right, distinguish between type 1 and type 2. And all we saw was the blood glucose, right? So then we said, well, we have this drug called insulin, which will lower the blood glucose, and therefore we should give it. And it didn't matter whether you're type 1 or type 2, because all we saw was the blood glucose. Again, again, it's a, it's a total logical fallacy, because again, until the Accord study in 2000 and what was it, 2008, 2009, something like that, 
the whole purpose of endocrinology, diabetology, was to lower the blood glucose, right? There was no thought of anything else. And the point is that it's not the blood glucose is not the problem, right? The, the type 2 diabetes causes your high blood glucose. So the high blood glucose is a symptom of your disease. So what we're doing, of course, is treating the symptom, but not the disease. So the disease is type 2 diabetes. You give insulin, your symptoms are better. Your, your glucose goes down. But you, you, you gain weight, you get fat, and therefore your type 2 diabetes gets worse. So if you give insulin to a type 2 diabetic, even as your symptoms get better, your disease gets worse, right? So it's no different than if you have a giant abscess in your abdomen and there's a big fever. And you say, let's give Tylenol. And that doesn't work. Give more Tylenol. Give more Tylenol. Give more Tylenol. Well, this is symptomatic treatment. You're going to kill the patient that way. Yet that's what we accepted as the sort of core practice of endocrinology, of diabetology. Just get those sugars down no matter what. It's like, do you not realize that that is only the symptom of your disease? What did you do for your type 2 diabetes? The underlying actual problem that's causing your symptoms. And the answer is nothing. That insulin did nothing but make it worse. So therefore, you have to say, well, if it's going getting worse, then why do it at all, right? Mm -hmm. And now, of course, we have other drugs, such as the SGLT2s, which have a completely different paradigm because what you're doing is you're urinating out your glucose, you're lowering your insulin because your glucose is getting flushed into the toilet. So your insulin is going to start to fall, which is perfect because now your insulin is too high, you've got a drug that actually lowers your insulin. And guess what? Now we're seeing all these benefits. So renal protection, cardiac protection, right? Huge benefits because you're actually doing the right thing. You're treating the hyperinsulinemia by bringing it down. And people are saying, I don't understand why this drug is so good. It's like, I understand perfectly why this drug is so good. Because you're treating the disease and not yeah. the symptom. And of course, it's, you know, people don't understand, like, uh, you know, people just just go out there and say, maybe it's got other effects other than the glucose effect. It's like, forget the glucose. That's your symptom, not the disease. You've mistaken the symptom for the disease. And then you wondered why treating the symptom had no benefit. It's like it never has benefit ever in any of medicine. It doesn't have a benefit. Well, it's amazing to hear that that line from a medical doctor, just given, you know, conventional therapy is always to let's, how do we lessen the harm? How do we sort of take care of the symptoms? And it's, it's so refreshing to, to see that at some point you decided to, to, to think more intuitively, logically and, and change the narrative because it's, it's a huge, huge problem. And no doubt you've, you've helped to awaken a ton of other medical doctors in your field as a result of you doing that. Um, I mean, you're bringing up some really big things around mythology of disease and, and illness. And so uh, and I want that we want to kind of break down some of the fasting myths and, and just like you disrupted the, the, the old paradigm here in conventional diabetology and nephrology. Um, there was a recent article that came out. I'm not sure if you saw the Dr. Ethan Weiss article on, on the the lack of benefit of using intermittent fasting as a tool for weight loss. Uh, David and I did a podcast sort of breaking down some of the things that we saw, but I'd love to hear what you thought of when you first saw that article. Yeah. And really the things are the devil sort of in the details. So the, the, the issue is that it was the way they set up the trial. So they used yeah. a 16 hour time restricted eating. 
And um, the problem is that they, they let people eat, and this is from the study, ad libidum, right? Mm -hmm. So you can eat basically whatever you want. That's the instructions. Eat whatever you want, cookies, cakes, ice cream, eat whatever you want. You can eat, you know, the whole eight hours straight if you wanted to. Um, and that's the instructions compared to the conventional instructions, which is three structured meals a day. And that's, you know, taken straight from the study. And the problem with that, of course, is that if you simply eat whatever you want, you're going to have a tough time losing weight, even if you restrict it to eight hours of the day. Um, you know, we've treated hundreds and hundreds of people. And I'll tell you that 16 hours fasting is relatively weak. Like it's not a great strategy. And, and I asked him, why did you choose a time-restricted eating? Like, you know, fasting for 16 hours is not that much, considering that if you look at, you know, a 1970s-style uh, eating pattern, you'd eat dinner at 6 p.m., you'd eat breakfast at 8 a.m., that's a 14-hour fast. You're only going up by two hours to try and make somebody lose weight, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's not a lot. And he said, well, it's because in the rat studies, uh, an eight-hour fast, time-restricted feeding, uh, eight-hour sort of eating window in a rat, you could eat whatever you want. And I'm like, okay, but the, in, in a, a rat has a much different metabolism. So therefore, that, like, they have to eat all the time. Rats have to eat quite frequently just because they're, they've, they've got a high metabolic rate. So that eight-hour eating window in a rat is, is you, know, that, you know, that's more equivalent to, like, a, maybe a 24-hour fast or even a 36-hour fast. So mm -hmm. you can't take that, the, what worked in a rat, which was, you know, eight-hour eating window, and say in a human, which is a much lower metabolic rate, and say, okay, eat whatever you want in this eight hours, and, and, and expect to get the benefits. You'd have to say, okay, you're going to do a 36-hour fast, okay, and in this two hours, you eat whatever you want. And then that's the equivalent to the rat study that you based mm -hmm. it on. But the problem was, of course, that the people that were running the study, I don't think they treated anybody with fasting. I mean, I've treated hundreds and hundreds of people over the last six, seven years. So I know that if you just tell people do whatever you want over 16 <laughs> with a 16 hour fast, you ain't going to get any benefits, no. like highly unlikely to find any benefits. Like with the type two diabetics and stuff and people are trying to lose weight, we're mostly going up to 24 hours, sometimes 36 hours. Right. And, or if you're going to do a shorter one, then you need to be really strict on the foods that you're eating, like cutting out the snacks. So, you know, three meals a day, but, but very strict on what you're eating. You don't want to be eating cookies and ice cream, for example. So, you know, the way they set up the study um, was not going to lead to success, in my opinion. And, and so I agree with the results of the study. The study mm. says that that ain't going to work. And I agree. You, let, you tell somebody to eat whatever they want over eight hours of the day, it ain't going to work. So that's pretty much what they found. The problem, of course, was that then they generalized and said, Intermittent fasting doesn't work. It's like, well, if you don't eat, you will lose weight. There's really no other physical reality, right? If you don't eat, you will lose weight. Uh, it's just a matter of can you do it for long enough? You know, are you doing it for long enough? Are you doing the proper strategy? Like there's two sort of levers that you pull with weight loss, right? There's what you eat and when you eat. Right? So if you can pull the lever and say, okay, let's cut out all the junk food, all the processed food and all the stuff. And you can eat three, four or five meals a day. But if you are only eating really good foods, you'll probably do pretty well. The other lever is when you eat. So when you cut out 
you know, periods of time where you're not going to eat, you're going to do the same thing. That is, you're going to be able to affect weight loss. So you can do a variation of, you know, we'll do a little bit of, you know, changing the foods to better foods and we'll do a bit of fasting and that'll get you where you want to go. But the problem is, of course, they completely released what you ate and said, eat whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And then had a very, very mild uh, fasting period and then said, well, fasting doesn't work. Well, so, so the study, I think, was fine. I mean, I'm, I'm all for doing studies anyway. So the f studies showed what I would have expected that show. But what happened was this overgeneralization to fasting mm -hmm. doesn't work. It's actually pretty harmful. That's what the New York Times says, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, there might be harm in fasting. It's like, okay, well, you guys do whatever you want, right? I'm, I'm, I'm you know... <laughs> I, I can only tell you my experience as somebody who's used it in the field. And then, you know, that's a big difference between sort of the academic who says, this theory is great, it should work. And the clinician who says, well, you know, you got to, that ain't going to work because I've done that. And, you know, these short fasts and when they eat whatever they want, they can even fast for longer than that and still do really badly. Right. There, there's, there's two different things you have to have to worry about. So that was the study, and I'm I'm not, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not against the study. I mean, I think the study showed what I would thought it would showed, but you know, probably put a damper in the whole uh, enthusiasm, which is ultimately harmful to patients who might have benefited from it, mm -hmm. and harmful to 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 the whole uh, you know idea that you can actually use this as a tool because 16 hours is not what you need. You might need more. Like we use 24 hours most, most commonly yeah. and you can go up from there. So, you know, it's, it, it is what it is. Right. But it's, uh, you know, it's a little bit, you know, I think he is well-intentioned, but unfortunately I think he really, really did harm to patients by mm -hmm. sort of yeah. doing such a, poorly constructed sort of thing and it's not his fault i guess but he sure didn't bring in anybody who was knowledgeable about fasting yeah. like have you used it for a couple thousand people like maybe you should actually try it first before you do a study on it mm -hmm. i mean it's sort of like me trying to get into the mba without ever having played basketball <laughs> right it's like i've read all about it right i i love reading about basketball and why i could go play it's like no you can't like yeah. Get the basics, sort of like if you want to do a study on fasting, get a clinician who's actually used it for a couple thousand people, not reading a rat study and then designing a human study because there might be something that falls through in the design of that study. I mean, I think they got some graduate student who probably hasn't seen a patient ever and, mm -hmm. you know, and a, you know, an Ethan Weiss who... Who, I think he did it himself and he told a few patients, but it's not like he had a metabolic clinic that was just yeah. seeing patient like every 10 minutes, another patient with metabolic syndrome, another totally. 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, right? It's, uh, it's, well, it's I think, different. I, th I think you brought up so many good points there. And, and, one, and, and I always like studies like this because I think that it's a chance for deeper education and to show like, yeah, you do that, it's not going to work. So I to and I love that you just just validated the study for what it was and and I think it's just it's a leverage point to educate further and so I love all those points. Um, let's let's go through some other myths just because that sort of set the stage. Uh, you can't fast because you're going to lose muscle. Yeah, that's that's one of the ones that everybody talks about, and that's actually one of the things that the study uh, was supposed to prove, right? Um, and again, 
it, it's sort of from a misunderstanding of what happens during fasting. So if you look at the physiology of fasting, which has been known for like 50 plus years, what happens, of course, is that as you fast, insulin starts to fall. Then you start to use your sources of energy that you carry on your body, right? Your stored sources of calories. So the first thing you do is you break down glycogen, which is sugar. It's glucose molecules that are strung together and you get glycogen so when you don't eat you take the glycogen break it back down into glucose and you use it by the time you get about 16 to 24 hours then you get into a period called gluconeogenesis there's this sort of slow switching glycogen starting to run out and your body's going to start burning some protein and that's where people say you're going to lose muscle you're going to lose muscle and this is the big uh, thing so from about say 16 to 20 22 hours depending on how much glycogen you have to about 30 hours, which is when fat metabolism really starts to pick up. So at 30 hours, you start lipolysis, which is breaking down the fat. The fat liberates fatty acids. So remember, uh, you have uh, triglycerides, which is glycerol backbone plus three fatty acid chains. You break down your fatty acids and your body, most of your body uses fatty acids. Your, your heart, your liver, your kidneys, your muscles, they can all use fatty acids directly. So you don't need glucose. The glycerol gets turned into glucose for the brain. The, the liver turns, uh, you know, starts making ketones again that cross the blood-brain barrier and feeds the brain. So this period, this window where you have this breakdown, the, the gluconeogenesis, everybody thinks it's so bad. But first thing is, is that muscle is not the same as protein. So when you have somebody who is overweight, they actually have way, way, way too much protein. And that's all that connective tissue and all that skin and stuff right? Um, so if you look at those TLC, you know, shows where they lose a lot of weight with surgery, they have all this excess flappy skin that you actually have to cut off. Um, that's all protein. That's not fat. Like you need to catabolize that protein. That is what you're supposed to do. So the breakdown pro of protein, everybody thinks is a bad thing, but it's actually not a bad thing. If you look at the process of autophagy, for example, which I'll touch on in a second, the first thing you want to do is actually you want to break down this protein, the old protein, and then that's the only way you're going to rejuvenate the system, which is build it back up when you need to. That's how the body works, right? And when you're renovating your bathroom, right, the first thing you've got to do is gut it. You've got to throw everything out right? Get rid of those old tub, the old bath, you know, the old sinks and all that before you can put a new one in. That's actually what fasting does. So it gets rid of all the old stuff. And then growth hormone, of course, goes way up. In 24 hours, you've got about three to four times the production of growth hormone. Growth hormone, if you remember, is one of the counter regulatory hormones. So if insulin goes down, growth hormone skyrockets. So that when you start to eat again, what you're going to do is you're going to replace all the proteins that you need. You're not going to replace the proteins that you don't need, right? That's how the body works. You get rid of, you know, you get rid of sort of like, uh, it's like those, you know, budget cuts, sort of 10% across the board. It's like the body, it's all that protein, uh, you know, some of it has to go all of it, but it doesn't know what you need and don't need. Mm -hmm. So you burn some of the skin and the connective tissue, for example, and then your body's like, Hey, I don't need more skin, but I need my muscles. Right? So it's going to replace that muscle. And, and in that process, you're going to rejuvenate. So remember, this is the way the body works. So how do you replace bone? The normal bone turnover starts with the osteoclast. You actually break down bone before you, you activate the osteoblast, right? That's the only way you do it. So 
you know, in 2016, the Nobel Prize for Medicine went to uh, this doctor for um, this researcher for the study of autophagy. And what autophagy is, is that when you fast, you activate this process of autophagy where you break down organelles, right? And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Overweight people have somewhere around 50 to 100% more protein than you need. That's all that connective tissue and flappy skin. So it's interesting because when we, we've treated, you know, hundreds and, or thousands of patients, and some people have lost a lot of weight, but we've actually never referred anybody to, for, weight, for skin removal surgery hmm. because they've actually catabolized it. When you activate the, the fasting, when you activate the autophagy, your body's going to break down protein but that's not a bad thing. You want to break down some of that protein, not forever. Because again, think about it you know, evolution, from an evolutionary standpoint. Your body stores energy in two ways. Your body stores glycogen and it stores body fat. So if you say that fasting causes muscle breakdown, you'd have to think our body is so stupid that we store energy as glycogen and fat and the minute you need it, we break down muscle. It's like, well, if our body was that stupid, we actually wouldn't be standing here, right? It'd be like Planet of the Apes or something because the human body was too stupid to do that, right? It's, it's sort of like, oh, you store firewood for the winter, but as soon as it gets cold, you chop up your sofa and throw it in the fire. It's like, you're not going to last very long uh, as a pioneer there, buddy. So same thing for our body. Like we store glycogen, we store fat. Why? So that we can use it right? And if there's excess protein, there is a small period where there is going to be protein breakdown. But again, if you are in a, you know, protein deficit and stuff, you don't have to flush all that. You break down these proteins to amino acids. You don't necessarily have to flush it out the toilet. So you can measure ammonia breakdown in long-term fast, like 60 days, 80 days, 90 days, and it goes way down. So your body is going to reclaim all of that nitrogenous, you know, the amino acids and the nitrogen that's part of that and can rebuild it into new protein, right? That's just the way our body is. That's how we survive to be you know, seven plus billion of this earth. It, it wasn't by being so stupid that we had to keep feeding ourselves, you know, a muffin every three hours in order to not lose muscle, right? It's, it's ridiculous. And, and, and the other thing that I always find ridiculous is like, we all know how muscle grows, right? If you exercise, your muscle grows. Surprise. That's what happens. <laughs> if you don't exercise, if you stay in bed, somebody's bed bound, muscle you lose muscle very fast. We know that. Like you send somebody up, an astronaut up into space, their muscle goes like that. And it doesn't matter what they eat. It only matters how much they exercise it, right? So if you have no gravity, your muscle really, really drops fast. Everybody knows that. We've known that since, you know, 1960. And if you exercise, you get stronger. You don't exercise, you get weaker. That's how you lose muscle not by what you eat or you don't eat, assuming that you're not like completely malnourished, of course. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, that's a perfect segue into uh, discussing your upcoming book because uh, I think so many people, especially when it comes to cancer, it's like, no, you got to keep nourishing your body, keep giving yourself food. 
let's let's talk about why you decided to start to shift your attention into the world of cancer um is that this is this is so important yeah cancer is such an interesting interesting disease actually i got into it originally from the obesity uh standpoint because of course there's um, a lot of cancers that are actually obesity-related cancers. So we didn't know that until 2003. So I went to medical school in the 90s, and we never talked about obesity, ever, right? It was all about smoking and all this other stuff. Um, and then in 2003, the Cancer Prevention 2 study came out, which sort of definitively put obesity on the map. Of course, by then there's the obesity epidemic. So it was becoming more and more obvious that obesity played a huge role. So now today the World Health Organization identifies 13 different types of cancer as obesity related. And what's interesting is that if you look at what role obesity plays in the causation of cancer. So you can look at different risk factors and say, in a population, uh, how much cancer is attributable to, say, smoking. And not, smoking is number one, by, you know, clearly. And it's about 35% of cancer is related to smoking. Well, where's a diet? It's about 30%. In other words, diet is almost as big a problem, a contributor to cancer as smoking. And far, those two far outstrip anything else like radiation and pesticides and chemicals and all this other stuff that we talk about. It, it's like 2%, right? Nothing comes close to tobacco or diet. And yet we don't talk about diet almost at all in terms of cancer. Just as you said, we say, oh, yeah, you want sugar, go ahead, have sugar, right? It's like, well, that doesn't make any sense because these are cancers that are related to your diet. So, yes, maybe if you have cancer, it's going to be too late to, 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 to prevent it at that point. But it doesn't mean that it's not important uh, overall. And, and, of course... So, so that's how I got into it and, and really the link between insulin because all of these diseases, interestingly enough, are diseases of hyperinsulinemia. So you talk about obesity and people think it's a calories problem, but of course calories had the same sort of lack of logic as type 2 diabetes, right? This, this whole idea of calories in, calories out. Uh, that all calories are equal, that, that sort of stuff is just not scientifically based, right? So when you eat calories, so you say, say you take 100 calories of cookies versus an egg or something like that, like your hormonal response is completely different. The minute you put it in your mouth, you get totally different hormonal responses. And yet we're supposed to pretend that it's equal. It's like, it's not equal. If your hormone is your insulin skyrocketing like that, it's going to have an effect as opposed to your egg, which is completely flat that's going to have an effect too, right? So totally different. So the thing about cancer is that it turns out that insulin, for example, is one of the factors that plays a huge role in things like breast cancer and colorectal cancer. So uh, obesity is a big risk factor for those obesity-related cancers, type 2 diabetes, and both are diseases of too much insulin. So it makes logical sense that you know, cancer is also made worse by something such as hyperinsulinemia. That's not the whole story, though. That's how I got into it, but it turned out not to be the whole story. And of course, it was very much more interesting because not only is insulin an important metabolic hormone, in the last 15 years, what we've recognized is that insulin is a hugely important growth factor. So 
uh, they've discovered this whole PI3K uh, pathway, which is the, the way that insulin is not just about energy metabolism, but in primitive organisms, it's actually a growth factor. So you have insulin-like growth factor, for example. So you have these diseases. Well, if you have too much insulin, well, you're giving tons of growth signals. And guess what? That's not going to be good for cancer. In fact, if you have a cancer, it's going to be very, very bad for you. Um, so that's how I sort of, sort of started to think about it. But then it got way more interesting because I it started to get into the question of how cancers develop. And it turns out over the last sort of 10 years, there's been this huge shift from the sort of genetic paradigm of cancer mm -hmm. into this evolutionary uh, paradigm of cancer, which is that these were not random genetic mutations that caused the cancer, but in fact, it was, you know, these cancers didn't actually evolve. And the question then is, why are they evolving to cancer? Because it's not an accident, it's not random. Uh, why are they evolving towards this sort of cancerous phenotype? And it turns out that it's probably a reaction to sort of chronic, sublethal, low-grade uh, damage. And that's one of the things that is, uh, you know, leading to new treatments that are sort of evolving and sort of give me great hope that, 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 that we'll get more, you know, innovative cancer treatments in the future. So, you know, the book is, is not just about uh, nutrition and cancer, although it takes up a big part of the book, but it's really a question of what is cancer and how do we think about cancer and what are the paradigms of cancer? And it turned out to be a way more interesting story than I had even thought when I started it. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Go ahead, David. Oh, it's so interesting how he's tying in this whole insulin piece to cancer because I think that's a big thing that nobody hears of. I think everybody's still on this genetic trip of like, oh, it's all genetic and I've got to check my genes to see if, you know, I'm going to have an issue here. Yeah. Yeah. The whole, the whole idea that's all in your genes was a huge sort of, uh, you know, throwback because the, the, it's it's about and it's about not just the seed of cancer because the seed of cancer actually exists in all of our cells. You know, it's an interesting question because it's like, why does every cell in the body? Why can every cell in the body become cancer? Right? Like, you can get cancer in your eyes, and you can get cancer in your placenta, for God's sake. Right? So every single cell in your body can become cancerous, which is an interesting question of why, but not just the human body, but every single animal like dogs get cancer cats get cancer even hydro which are these microscopic animals can get cancer why does cancer exist in all of us so basically what you've got is that cancer actually is part of the way that multicellular life life happens um but that's a you know that's a whole different topic but the 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 um thing is that that seed of cancer sort of exists in all our cells, but it's not that just a seed because that's what genetics is. It focuses on the seed. It's the it's a question of the seed and the soil, right? So if you have a seed and you buy it in a little seed packet or whatever, it never grows, but you put it in the soil. And if you put it in the desert, for example, it still doesn't grow, but you get the right seed, the right soil, and it will grow. So it's not simply about the genetics but actually the environment that, that sort of the body, the human body, that environment of insulin and obesity and hormones and metabolism, that is what actually allows this cancer to grow. And again, this is stuff we've known for a hundred years. Because if you take a woman from Japan 
her risk of breast cancer. You move that Japanese or Chinese woman from Japan to San Francisco, her risk of breast cancer approximately doubles or triples within a couple of generations. So it's not the genetics, because the genetics hadn't changed. It's the, the diet and the lifestyle of sort of North America compared to Japan or Shanghai in the 80s. Uh, that is what has changed, which is actually very, very important because if you can understand what the difference was, you, that means you could take the risk of breast cancer in an American woman and drop it to a third if you could understand that, right? So that's the prize. That's what's so important about delineating what these important factors are in the soil sort of thing. It's the ecology of the cancer because you can have a cancerous seed because we all do um, but you may never see it bloom if you are able to take care of your body in that way and insulin plays a big role in that i talk about mTOR which is this other sort of nutrient sensor which is again another super super interesting story um, mTOR is it goes up when when you eat uh, protein for example and one of the things that we know is that if you eat a lot of, you know, if mTOR is stimulated, then you actually get a lot of growth signaling. So again, growth signaling, if you have the cancer, is generally not going to be a good thing. So, you know, these, so, so these are things that you can now say, okay, well, if the point is that this is a disease that is made worse by hyperinsulinemia, what am I going to do about it? Well, you can eliminate that, cut down sugar, you can, you know, fast because that's a way to get down your insulin you can cut down your refined foods you can cut down your sort of refined carbohydrates and those are all ways that you could help potentially uh, mitigate the risk of cancer mm -hmm. that's awesome i mean it's it's so important to tie all these pieces together and, and i love how you're speaking about the, the seed versus the soil i mean that's we're in the middle of a, a crazy time in in the world right now where we've really neglected the soil Right. Yeah. I mean, especially when we're looking for the bug, the, the cancer, the, the diagnoses and not actually giving enough reference to that soil and where, where healing actually happens in, in your research for the book. I'm curious, like what was some of the or maybe I'm mean, sure there's tons, but what were what was like one of the biggest ahas that you were like, man, I'm so glad I found out about this. I mean, and I'm sure there's tons of those, but I'd love to hear like what blew your mind when you were writing your book. I think it was the whole, um, so I knew a lot about the sort of uh, metabolic stuff, which, uh, but, but what sort of blew my mind was this whole idea of cancer as an evolutionary disease. It was so interesting. Um, so, you know, essentially the, the hypothesis that, that people think is more correct. So the old hypothesis, the genetic hypothesis. So, you know, and originally we thought of cancer as a cell that grows too much, right? So then we developed ways to kill it, like surgery and radiation and poison, like chemotherapy. But then we said, well, why does the cell grow too much? So then we landed on this genetic thing and we said, well, you have mutations in genes that allow the cell to grow too much, which is great. So then you develop drugs like imatinib, which correct this genetic problem. But the, the thing is that you get to this stage where you say, well, how many genetic mutations have you found in cancer? And they have a catalog of this. There's 6 million different mutations wow. that they've found in cancer. So it's not like one or two, right? It's not like CML where you have the BCR-ABL protein and it's like, that's the one. 
fix that and you've gotten rid of the cancer. So there's 6 million different mutations in cancer. So clearly it's not this random genetic mutation. There's nothing random about it. That is, if you take a cancer, like a, you take a, a woman, you know, an American woman in 1920 who develops breast cancer and a Japanese woman who develops breast cancer in 2020. So two women, a century apart, half a world apart, yet their breast cancers look exactly the same, right? How did they evolve, right? How did these two cancers evolve completely independently, yet look exactly the same? Right? So clearly it's not an evolution forward. That is, if you start with a breast cancer cell and randomly mutate it, they will not look the same. Right? It's mm. just like if you tell two kids, you know, draw a painting of something. They're not going to be the exact same painting. Right? So this clearly, this, this evolution towards the cancer phenotype is not a forward evolution, but it's a backwards evolution. Mm. Right? So you have to go backwards in time to a more primitive state. That is to say that you're taking a cell, which is like a breast cancer cell, for example, and the way it's evolving is towards a more unicellular state because we all evolve from unicellular organisms. So unicellular organisms like bacteria, for example, they have certain traits that differentiate them from multicellular organisms. That is... They, 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 they move around, which is like cancer cells. They grow, always growing, right? That's just like a cancer cell. And they're immortal, just like a cancer cell, right? Those are all ways. So the, the cancer is actually evolving backwards towards this evolutionarily more primitive state. So you're taking a cell in a multi-celled organism and you're evolving towards a unicellular organism. And that's how they become the same. That's why the seed of cancer exists in all of our cells because we all evolve from unicellular organisms and interestingly enough if you look at the way that you describe a cancer cell pathologically that's exactly what you say it's mm -hmm. primitive right you've got a lot of blast cells it's very primitive looking it's de-differentiated it's de-specialized you're moving towards a more primitive organization and so what sort of blew my mind was that in the last couple of years, they've started to look at the genes. So we have all these different genes, right? Six million different gene mutations. And what they did was they sort of differentiated them, not on what these gene mutations are, but sort of at what period in evolutionary history did these genes happen? So they divided all the genes in the human body and they said, you know, here's, you know, level one, two, three, four, and these are the most recent ones and these are the most primitive ones. Where are the mutations in cancer? And what you see is this big spike right at the, the sort of junction of unicellular and multicellular life. And it's like, that's exactly what we're talking about, is this drive from a multi-cell existence into a unicellular existence. And that's where all the mutations are, because these unicellular organisms, as we all, all evolve from, that's the sort of cancers, you know, the basic sort of subroutine. But when we evolve, we put on all, all kinds of sort of controls on top of that, right? And when, when these cells are under stress, they're under a selection pressure, what you do is remove all these controls over the original sort of cancer programming. And that's how you get it. That's just like, for example, I say it's like, you know, training a bear, right? You take a bear, you train it to dance and wear a tutu, 
But when it gets stressed, it goes back to being a wild animal. Yes, it has a tutu on, but it's still going to play. And that's the same thing. Under stress, these cells actually move towards this sort of original programming that was always there. It was never erased. And the fact that you can find evidence now that, you know, not by dividing the genes according to what they do, but according to their evolutionary time scale and find this huge peak is, to me, it's like, whoa, I can't believe that we're on this sort of verge of sort of figuring out why these genes are mutating. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a tremendously interesting sort of idea, like nothing to do with nutrition per se, but just this really fascinating idea which then goes on to explain all those paradoxes of cancer. That is, why do you have, why does every cell in your body, why can it become cancer? Because that's how we evolved. Why is cancer so common? Because it's part of how multicellular life happens. Why is it in all animals? Well, that's why. It's not these random genetic mutations. There's nothing random. Why do all cancers look the same? Right, because the, the you know the, the the two cancers separated by half a world and one century look the same. Why? Because it actually is moving towards that sort of ancient phenotype. And it's like wow, that is so interesting, and it, it explains so much about cancer. I mean, it's it's like cancer is is evolving into almost a separate species. Right, because it's 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 not of us, and then you say, okay, that's ridiculous, right? But then it's like, okay, think about the immune system. You know that the immune system identifies self antigens and foreign antigens, right? There's self and non-self. Well, natural killer cells will attack cancer cells, like innate. It's part of our innate immunity. Your immune system has identified that cancer cell as a foreign organism, right? So it's not the way that I look at it. It's the way that our immune system looks at it as a foreign organism. It's evolved into a completely foreign species that breast cancer cell has actually transformed itself into a foreign species that is identified by our own immune system as foreign. So it's not crazy. It's, it's what's happening right now. And it's like, wow, that's fascinating. So this is what leads to sort of a new paradigm. So we're not trying to kill cells. We're not trying to fix genetic defects. We're trying to boost our immune system mm-hmm. so that it can actually fight these foreign invaders. It's, it's a fascinating sort of uh, new way to look at cancer, which I think is like, wow, I, uh, my mind was just like... You, you just blew all our minds. I mean, I, I love that. fascinating. It, it ties back to kind of what you said before. It's like you got these two levers of what and when. You know, like what to eat, when to eat. It's almost like the genetics are kind of like, okay, we know what genes are there. We have the library of six million. But like when in time, you know, are, is, it, is it showing up? And to think that, you know, this, it's a, it's a re- regression almost, a regression or evolution yeah. as opposed to like a, a pro- progression. I mean, so it's that, like, yeah. what a fascinating discussion. And and it's like what always what blew my mind. So it's called an atavism. This sort of reverse okay. uh, evolution. This atavism is like the funny part is that it's actually been we've actually been looking at it under the microscope and identifying that it is becoming more primitive. You know, uh, it's it's crazy because you know we talk about we talk about blast cells and anaplasia and all that, and all of that actually refers to the fact that it's more primitive. When we talk primitive, we're talking about 
an evolutionary backwards in time, right? And it's like, wow, so we actually saw this in our, in our slides. We just never thought about applying that to the whole idea of what cancer is. And it's like, wow, that's just crazy. I just really, and that was one of the things I just thought was super fascinating about the whole story is that how, how, how our, our view is sort of morphing into it, but nobody talks about this. It's, it's, it's a very complex sort of topic. So that's why I wanted to try and unpack it for people, mm -hmm. um, you know, so that they understand it. Yeah, there, I can't, I'm trying to, the name slips me for a moment here, but uh, Dr. David, uh, the longevity guy in his book, he was talking, okay. yeah, Dr. David Sinclair, he was talking about this, this early uh, bacterial uh, phenotype that, that was present. That was, that was meant to be uh, basically where human life kind of came from. And he was kind of talking about these two states that these bacteria would move into. One was a reproductive state, meaning that the environment was conducive to growth and development. And then there was this sort of survival state, which would turn these, these, uh, microbes into more like a zombie and it just kept proliferating growing and getting stuck in this sort of um i guess re regressive behavior and and i think of like okay taking this to the level of the mind and we're stuck in a regressive behavior with our eating with our lifestyle with our thinking with our mindset i mean it's it's so fascinating to think of like this macrocosm of the microcosm and what's happening in the cellular level with you know with cancer and chronic illness you know uh Anyways, yeah. I, you got you got my wheels spinning in all sorts of different directions, <laughs> which is amazing. I, I just I love that discussion, and and I and I love what you're doing. Um, I want to respect your time, and, and I also want to make sure that that everyone uh, can get access to all all your resources. Where, where's the best place for people to go uh, to, to find? Yeah, out so uh, you can they can go to thefastingmethod.com. So that's my website, and if you look under the blogs, there's uh, you know I have we have blogs going back like years right so all the information is there um that's the fasting um and then on uh twitter or you can follow me on twitter or instagram that's at uh, doctor that's dr jason fung or youtube i'm putting out more videos just trying to explain these sort of uh, topics for people just to keep in mind <laughs> on youtube i'm actually jason fung Dr. Jason Fung was taken and somebody's using it to spam people. <laughs> and stuff. So oh my goodness. They, so they tell you if I do the opposite of what you're teaching. <laughs> Eat more carbs. <laughs> it's sort of crazy, but YouTube won't take them down. So they actually have my picture on it and everything wow. too. So it's like, okay. <laughs> That's good to know. Um, we, always, we always like to leave our listeners with uh, some home play, something that our guest can recommend maybe as a starting point, maybe it's going into you know, the fasting method and check, check out some of your stuff. But like, let's say someone's brand new to this, their, their mind is being blown right now because they're tuning in. Um, wh where do people start? I think the, um, you know, the obesity code, which was my first book really goes into it sort of at a very accessible level. I mean, my point is uh, you with, the, with all the books is to make it sort of accessible yeah. to the lay person yet written at a sort of technical level that a doctor would read it and say, okay, this is not like talking down to me kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's probably the best place to start. The fasting method is a great place. Also YouTube is also a great place to, to get a lot of the free stuff. Of course, the blogs are tough because you've got to scroll back and scroll back and scroll <laughs> back. Right. So it's, it's a little bit tough to find all that stuff. But, um, you know, those are, those are great places to start. And, yeah. and you know, I, as just thinking as you're saying, I think that this is one of the things that um, I think that is really important because we take this, 
paradigm of medicine that is, you know, in the 20th century, where we have medicine is sort of like antibiotics are the big thing, right? So infections were what killed people. So you, when you got sick, you went to your doctor, they gave you a pill and you got better. Or you gave you an injection, you got better. And we took this sort of paradigm of you go to the doctor, they give you a pill, you get better. We applied it to 21st century medicine, which is all chronic disease, right? It's all diabetes, it's all obesity, it's all heart disease and so on which is all lifestyle related. We, we took that same paradigm and we said, well, I have type two diabetes. Let me give you a pill, right? And it's the wrong thing to do. And we have like, oh, I have heart disease. And you know, it's like, here, let me give you a pill. Let me give you this or that. It's like, well, what about all of the lifestyle stuff that went into it or cancer, which is like obesity related cancer. It's like, oh, let me give you a pill or let me give you a treatment or let me give you surgery. What about all the other stuff that went into it? So we've taken that sort of old paradigm of medicine and tried to apply it to chronic disease and what we're seeing here in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And we're basically stuck because it's the wrong paradigm. Like you can't treat dietary diseases with drugs. That's just the bottom line. If it's a dietary disease, if it's a lifestyle disease and you need to treat the diet or the lifestyle, that's the root cause. And we haven't. We've taken that old paradigm and say diabetes let me develop a new drug for you it's like oh like come on like you can't do that right yeah. <laughs> let's get with it because you're not going to help people which is why we're all here right and that's the bottom line so that's why these these things to understand your own health are so important to you that's amazing i mean i love how you can take complex theories and understandings and, and make them so accessible and fun to listen to. I mean, that's why I've been loving sending one of your uh, YouTube videos, the two compartment syndrome. I literally sent it to every patient. And the part where you, you know, you talked about it today on the podcast with, you know, the ancient, ancient man, you know, how stupid could the body be to, <laughs> to eat its muscle and they have no chance for survival. I mean, so yeah, we love your message. We love your work. We're, we're honored that you, you were able to spend some time with us today. Um, David, go ahead. Uh, thank you so much, man. Really appreciate the truth bomb at the end. That was much needed for so many people to hear. And uh, yeah, thank you for your time, man. Really appreciate you. All right. Thanks, guys. That's great. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to subscribe to the Dr. Dads and share with your family and friends. You can also follow and interact with Dr. Nick and Dr. David on Facebook and Instagram for a daily dose of inspiration and the latest in health and wellness. Be well.